Alex spoke Russian, lived in Russia for a year, worked with Russian refugees in Chicago for two years. And his Russian teacher thought that he only needed one thing to make his life complete. She thought I needed a Russian girlfriend. She thought that only Russians would be able to stand up to me the way that I needed to be stood up to or, or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Our American women are just too <laughs> soft. I don't know what she... I, I truly don't know. But anyway, that's, what, that's the thought she had. So she kept trying to fix him up with Russian women. And this one night she had him come out with a whole bunch of people, including this woman, Elena, who was going to be his date. And so I meet them for dinner and um, we're at the sushi restaurant and we're all eating and everybody's telling stories and funny stories. And I'm sitting across from my date and my Russian teacher is turning to me and saying, you know, tell them this story, tell them that story. And so then I tell them this story and that story and everybody's laughing except for my date. And um, so we leave the sushi restaurant and we go and we go to this club and we're all all dancing like my Russian teacher's dancing and all of her friends are dancing and everybody's sort of like, you know, exchanging partners. And it's this sort of a, this fun scene and everybody's dancing except for um, my date who's just sitting at the table and sort of nursing a drink and looking and looking um, bored, really bored. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I keep on coming back from the dance floor and trying to, you know, saying, are you sure you want to dance? You want to dance? And then she'll, she sort of like, you know, will sort of smile bitterly and, and just shake her head and <laughs> and so then somebody else will drag me out and so finally I come back and I sit down and you know I'm, I'm sitting next to her and, and I'm trying to strike up a conversation and you know something about like oh, yeah, I guess you don't like dancing or something like that and she like sort of looks out at the floor and there's like people having you know a great time all around and she sort of like nods her chin towards the floor and she's like this is an American dance no <laughs> And I drove away thinking, well, that was that was a horrible date. Like, we, neither of us enjoyed each other, and that was... That was a disaster, yeah. pretty much. Like, we were not, not going to be seeing each other again. I get to Russian class the next week, and um, my Russian teacher says, um, Hey, so are you going to call Elena? She said she had a great time. And I was like, I was, like, I was floored by that. I was thinking, like... <laughs> I was trying to figure out, like, what that could possibly have meant. Like, <laughs> and so I was, like, sort of mulling it over my head because it really became, it was really fascinating to me. And, um, and I realized that I have a very sort of, like, clear and perhaps um, culturally informed idea of what a great date is. And it has to do with the idea of, like, what it means to fall in love. And I realized that in my, in my head, what I think about is a, is a, a great date is what sort of you see in the movies, like sort of the falling in love montage of, of the movies. You know, you go on a great date, it often involves a boardwalk. There's, there's a, a great deal of sort of like throwing your heads back in laughter. Um, <laughs> right. You might chase each other around a tree. <laughs> there's the splashing of water. <laughs> the splashing of water is almost <laughs> always involved. And I think for her, and, it, and this was something that I always noticed when I was in Russia, is that there's like, a, and I think that for her, it's, 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 I think it's, it's a totally different thing. You know, in, in, in Russia, and in Russian literature, there's a lot of talk about the soul and soulmates. And, um, and, and like, I think for her, like, falling in love means finding the one person on the planet who understands the misery of life as deeply and fully as you do and then can talk to you about it. And so, 
when she acted all depressed during their date, she was not actually blowing Alex off, like he thought at the time. She was flirting. So Alex decides to ask his Russian teacher about this theory, that Americans and Russians have completely different views of what it means to fall in love. And I have to say he's a little bit nervous to try this out on her because he's worried that maybe it's insulting or stereotyping Russians. But he explains the theory to her. And, um, and she totally agreed. She was like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. You're right. And, um, and then she just went on a, a rant about Americans. And she was like, what? Americans, they have no understanding of what it's like to fall in love. And like, and Americans, I never understand. Why do you always say he makes me laugh? Why is that so important? He makes me laugh. Every American I've ever met, all they say when, you know, if they, you ask them how the relationship is and they say, he makes me laugh, as if that's the greatest thing in the world. What's so great about it? He makes me laugh. She just, you know, <laughs> went off. Unlike something that I have, like, actually said many times, like, I just want somebody who makes me laugh. Some days, it seems like every story in the world is a story of cultural misunderstanding between people of different countries, Muslims and Christians, blacks and whites, Republicans and Democrats, men and women, Spanish speakers and Anglos, adults and children, rich people and poor people. And so today, in this era of misunderstandings abroad and at home, we bring you an hour of stories about what gets lost in translation. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our program today in three culture-bridging acts. Act one, the chasm between comedy and music. In that act, two brave people step into that chasm, drop into that chasm, however you put it. Act two, star of Bethlehem. We bring you the story of the most important, most respected newsman on television in the town of Bethlehem who does a program that is unlike any news show that you have ever seen. Act three, translating for the very, 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 very tall, in which we have for a change on our program a story that gets us close to someone so famous that you may have actually heard of him if you follow pro basketball in the tiniest way. Stay with us. Act one, the chasm between comedy and music. Well, we start today's program about translation with a story about karaoke. In karaoke, after all, you are the interpreter. You are the translator. You stand there with the words of a song appearing on a little TV monitor, and you try to render a life-size performance, a translation of the original hit, if you will, rendered in the musical language of you. And in a way, it's surprising that the only karaoke we have is for music. Why not karaoke of the I Have a Dream speech or the You Talking to Me from Taxi Driver? Recently, Jonathan Goldstein and Starley Kine, you hear them both on our program from time to time, heard about a karaoke bar which not only had songs, but comedy routines that you could perform on stage. They decided to find out for themselves how stand-up comedy translates to the karaoke stage. Starley and I talk quite a bit about chops, comedic chops, pacing, placement of the zinger, when to employ whimsy and when to employ wit, chops. Back when we worked in adjoining cubicles, we'd kill time by arguing over what was funny and what wasn't. Blowing cigar smoke in a baby's face. Not funny. A baby smoking a cigar. Funny. We were like borscht belt comedians without the borscht, the belt, or the audience. But the fact that we weren't knocking them dead at Grossinger's every night didn't keep us from coming up with titles for our showbiz bios. Starley's book was going to be called The Woman Behind the Chops. 
while I intended to call mine Sir Chops a lot. Why, just the other day I was giving young Starley a quiz. What's the most important thing in comedy? I asked her. I would have to say timing. Chops. So finally, Starley and I, after years of talking about comedy, actually decided to go out and create comedy. We were going to take it to the stage and tell jokes for an audience at this karaoke bar. We were going to exchange the tweed vestments of the armchair humorologist for the rainbow-striped suspenders of the practitioner. We wanted to see if we had what it took. The karaoke bar is called the Hidden Cove, and it had catalogs of different comedy routines, all from the late '80s, early '90s. Starley had already looked through them. She decided she was going to do a men bashing routine called "Men Are Perfect, Jerks." We talked about the proper delivery. Men are perfect, jerks. How's that? Too deadpan. Like imagine yourself walking away from the mic、mm-hmm. and then coming back to the mic, turning、so? your head and saying into the microphone, "Jerks." Okay, men are perfect, jerks. That's not bad. I'd I'd give it maybe a little bit more pause. The difference in our comedic approach is vast, as is our approach to life. At the office where Starley and I used to work together, people whose names she didn't even know would seek her out, bringing her homemade bread, presenting her with souvenirs from their vacations, and even setting aside her favorite caramel taffies from the communal office candy dish. I, on the other hand, had made the effort to learn the names of their children, grandchildren, and in one case, their pet hamster, Mr. Jinglepot. For all of this, I got nothing. Starley had concerns about the caliber of the jokes on the karaoke machine at the bar, how stale they might be. I explained to her that the material, no matter how cliched or boorish, did not matter. A true humorist, I said, could stand on stage and get laughs while reading an eviction notice. It was all in the delivery. It was all about chops. <laughs> When we showed up, we learned that the Hidden Cove is a very popular and beloved karaoke bar, and it was filled with patrons who came there every week to sing. This was the first week of the Iraq War, and the regulars, just like everyone else, had wanted some diversion—a night away from the news. They took their karaoke very seriously too. One man was hunched over a tattered notebook that he'd brought from home, in which he had neatly penciled the code numbers of his favorite karaoke songs, row after row of them. As people got on the stage to sing and dance, there was a general feeling of warmth and beery encouragement in the air. Everyone seemed to know everyone else, and when we asked them about the comedy routines on the karaoke machine, no one could recall ever having seen them done. Even the owners of the bar weren't quite sure what we were talking about. We finally found the lone page of comedy karaoke material, and we signed up to go on. I was after a woman singing a karaoke classic. My routine was called "My Parents Hated Me." My strategy was to deadpan my way through, following each punchline with my patented hapless look. I, I tell you, I had one hell of a childhood. I, I'm not. I'm not saying my parents didn't love me, but 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 my bath toys were a radio and a toaster. Nothing. Complete joyless silence. I, I, I Some I things just don't translate to the karaoke stage. To 
A karaoke machine, for instance, has no instinct for comedic timing. It just keeps scrolling down at the same pace. This means that sometimes you have to wait for a punchline to a joke for several awkward moments after having delivered the setup. It was messing up my chops. When I got lost, the cop helped me to look for my parents. Do you think we'll ever find them? I cried. The cop said, I don't know. There are so many places they could hide. As I walked off the stage, no one in the audience would meet my gaze. Still, given the circumstances, I didn't think I had done that bad. Next up was Star Lee. Hey, how about a little male bashing? Star Lee pulls out all these moves. She shrugs her shoulders as if to say, "What can you do?" She breaks free of the staccato rhythms of the karaoke screen and makes the material her own. She even does this thing where she points her toes inward to make herself look littler and thus cuter. She was like a pigeon-toed puppy taking its very first steps. Where's the best place to hide money from a man? Your forehead. She was winning over the crowd and getting laughs. My laughs. They took to her in the same way people in the office did. Thank you. I decided to head back up on stage. I was warmed up, and the audience was a little more familiar with my work. Plus, I chose a better routine this time. Earlier, I had self-deprecated myself out of laughs. Now, armed with a new selection of material from the karaoke machine, celebrity bashing jokes from 1992, I was going to kill. I hear Cher named her daughter Chastity, in memory of her preschool years. Not only were these jokes old and dated, but they were also tasteless and offensive. Did you hear about Roseanne Arnold? Still, I soldiered on, unaware that the grandest failure of timing in the history of comedy was about to unfold. Before I play you this next bit of tape, I should say in my own defense that a karaoke screen holds a weird hypnotic power. You can't help reading whatever rolls down the screen, and you only figure out the meaning of the words you speak as they are tumbling out of your mouth, and then it's too late. I'm going to play you the tape now. Please remember, it's not my fault. Don't judge me. What's the difference between Ted Kennedy and the Iraqi army? Ted Kennedy has at least one confirmed kill. I don't write this stuff. I, 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 did you hear Let me just reiterate. This was during the first week of the Iraq War, and things were not going as easily as America had hoped. American soldiers were dying, and there was no end in sight. A few days earlier, or a few days later, and my words would not have stung in the same way. It was not even clear what the audience was booing. It was like they just didn't know what else to do. Perhaps they were booing the sheer extraordinary coincidence of it all. Here was this leftover joke from the first Gulf War, being told for the first time in over a decade. And being told the very week we had gone back to war with the same country, it was like I had just delivered a punchline after a ten-year pause. Stupidly, I still somehow believed I could redeem myself. Instead, what rolled down the screen next was the second most tasteless joke from 1992. What's Mike Tyson's definition of foreplay? Jesus, that's t- I, that. At this point. The owner actually turned off my mic. Thank you. 
I've always held the greatest gift an entertainer can receive to be laughter that turns into applause. You know, that moment where a wave of laughter climaxes then breaks apart into the kind of appreciative clapping that says to a performer, We can no longer laugh because our sides are hurting with a pain that is too great. So now we will switch to clapping. God bless you, funny wise man. Now, instead of laughter turning into applause, I was experiencing booze turning into applause as I slunk off the stage. There, there wasn't an aspect of that applause that was sort of, um, that they were kind of with me, that they were sort of, hey, you're all right. Like, we uh, both just went through a bad situation. And are, are you kidding? A little, I mean, because I, I, I have to admit yeah. that a little bit, I kind of I felt like they were sort of sympathetic applause a little bit. Oh, you're crazy. You're so crazy. I can't believe it. You're I'm in total so. denial. No, I'm, I mean, I, I, would, I just wanted to run that by you, because I, I thought <laughs> maybe that was possible. No, trust me. They were against you. So I think I think what this whole experience has taught mm-hmm. us is that certain things just don't translate. Really? Yeah, I mean, karaoke is best served for music. I think that's the lesson that we've both learned from this experience that it's better to stick to to, you know, songs huh. and music like these boots are made mm-hmm. for walking and leave comedy off the karaoke stage I, I would have to say I uh, I disagree oh do you comedy translated just fine when I went up since karaoke night uh-huh. I was so pumped up from my success oh really yeah that I I thought of some new titles for my book you want to hear them uh sure my Chops, My Life, Chopzilla, The Chop That Was Heard Around the World, Queen Chop Tifa. Is this, is this your idea of a victory lap? I'm funnier than Jonathan. That's nice. The Kids Chasing the Chops, A Chip Off the Old Chopping Block, Lil Chop, It's Lonely Near the Chop, They Call Me Choppy, Companero, A Life with the Chops, Jonathan Goldstein with Sterling Kine, or is that the other way around? Laughing and a clowning Just to keep from crying I'm laughing and a clowning Just to keep from crying Act two, Star of Bethlehem. Okay, now these possibly helpful geopolitical facts. Most Palestinians don't speak Hebrew. Most Israelis don't speak Arabic. Where Palestinians live, in a place like Bethlehem on the West Bank, Israeli newspapers aren't even for sale. Checkpoints block the passage of civilians from one side to another. All of this to say, each side has very little daily knowledge of what the other side is thinking and talking about. But for the last three and a half years, since the beginning of the current intifada, a Palestinian journalist in Bethlehem has had a nightly news program on Bethlehem TV where he translates the Israeli nightly news broadcasts into Arabic, live, in real time. He also translates and summarizes articles from the Israeli newspapers and Internet sites. The show is popular in Bethlehem, but it is very complicated, speaking your enemy's language. Nancy Updike tells the story. 
Because he's translating, Nasser Laham is reporting things that have never been reported in the territories before, things that in the normal course of events are not even talked about in public. When Yasser Arafat slapped the former head of security for the West Bank, stuck a gun in his face and said, I'm going to kill you, Nasser's translation of an Israeli TV report was the only Arabic-language broadcast to mention the incident. When an Israeli newspaper published an expose about corruption in the top leadership in Bethlehem, Nasser was the only one who picked the story up, and he broadcast his translation in spite of a flurry of increasingly threatening phone calls from the leaders involved. Soon after, they were all ousted. And even though the story came from a newspaper in Jerusalem, which is only 15 minutes away from Bethlehem, most likely no one would have heard about it if Nasser hadn't told the story. There is no comparing between the Palestinian newspapers and the Israeli newspaper because our, our newspapers are very bad. It's hard. It's hard to take the truth from your enemy, from the Israeli side, not from the Palestinian leadership. All Palestinian media, newspapers, radio, television, except for private television stations like Bethlehem TV, are tightly controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Take the way the Palestinian papers covered the recent power struggle between Arafat and the new prime minister, known as Abu Mazen, whose appointment was supposed to be the first step toward a new peace process. In the period of Abu Mazen government, they didn't wrote anything about Abu Mazen. They start to search for Saddam Hussein and the SARS. They so they were writing about the SARS virus yeah. rather than Abu Mazen? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> Why weren't they writing about Abu Mazen? You know, you know, Nancy, I keep, I keep my, the newspapers in my house for the history. To say it in 20, 21, 22 April, when all the newspapers in the world, they wrote about Abu Mazen, the Palestinian newspaper, they didn't do that. Whenever there's a suicide bombing of any size in Israel, Israeli TV goes into non-stop crisis coverage, and Bethlehem TV carries this live, with Nasser translating for hours. You see emergency workers running stretchers with burned and bloody people to ambulances. I watched with a translator of my own. You'll hear Nasser's voice in Arabic, then my translator in English. Have you been in the cafeteria? Yes. We were sitting. I heard the explosion. She's talking while she's shivering. Nasser interjects these kind of details when he's translating. She's shivering as she's talking. Because he wants his viewers to know exactly what's happening. They can't hear her voice shaking. So he tells them. If the Israeli knows what's happening in the Palestinian uh, lands with details, and the Palestinian knows what's happening in the Israeli cities with details. Trust me, the decisions will be different. Do you think that um, that watching the the coverage of a suicide bombing? Do you think it makes people it makes Palestinians watching it? Do you think it makes them more sympathetic mm -hmm. to Israelis? No, uh, Nancy, I, I think that the question is wrong. Your question is wrong. Why? Because they saw before. Pictures they saw. Anyone can open the Israeli television and saw the pictures, but they didn't understand what they are talking in the television with the Hebrew. This is my role, to translate emotions, facts, numbers. In fact, plenty of the details Nasser translates have got to stir outrage rather than sympathy. 
Nasser's producer told me that one of the reasons Bethlehem TV decided it was important to follow Israel's continuous coverage after a suicide attack is that Israelis speak then without filters. Politicians openly call for what's known as transfer, the removal of all Palestinians from the territories. Ordinary Israelis call for revenge, say the peace process is hopeless because Palestinians are all terrorists. Nasser translates it all without hedging. Palestinians never use the words terrorist or suicide bomber. They say shaheed, martyr. But when Israel TV says terrorist, Nasser does too. I'd wanted to meet Nasser ever since I saw this book he published about Arafat, which is so strange and provocative that it's not in any Palestinian political category so much as orbiting all of them. The cover of the book is red, with a picture of Arafat smiling, and the title is The Truth, The Whole Truth About Yasser Arafat, the man who's led Fatah and the PLO for 37 years. On the back it says, In this book, I put between the hands of the reader what has never been said before about the man who led one of the greatest and longest liberation movements in the world. With all modesty, I present the reader with information in opposition to what Palestinian, Arabic, Islamic, Western, and Israeli research and study have determined about this man. When you open the book, it's empty. All the pages are blank, except the very first page, where Nasser invites the readers to fill the book with their own opinions. I'm confident that you will have something to write, he says, because every person views President Arafat as he wishes. Half the Palestinians I show the book to get really angry. The other half burst out laughing, at least in part due to shock. You just don't see this kind of joke, an absurdist prank, in the territories, where the situation is so dire, where everyone feels like the entire world is against them and their leader. In general, Nasser's sense of humor is pretty dark. One time he was telling me how much the Arab world hates Israel's Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, he offered this prescription for fighting al-Qaeda and achieving world peace. If Sharon uh, supports the al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden, maybe the, all the Middle East will be against the al-Qaeda. It's a good idea. Try that. <laughs> Nasser drives to work in the morning in his beat-up 84 Opal hatchback, a car so crappy it's like a giant neon sign saying, I am not on the take. He turns on the TV and Israeli army radio and starts looking at the breaking news in Israel over the Internet. He lights a cigarette. He smokes all the time, and in this way that makes you feel like everyone else who smokes is just messing around. With every drag, he takes all the smoke in in a big gulp. He smokes each one down until the filter's about to melt. I've never seen him eat. Nasser taught himself Hebrew in prison from an Arabic Hebrew dictionary he asked his parents to send him. I should mention that so many Palestinian men have been to prison that it's almost a given, especially men around Nasser's age, 36, who were young activists at university during the first intifada. As soon as he learned Hebrew, he started teaching other prisoners. He's taught it ever since to friends, relatives, students, businessmen. It's sort of a compulsion. His crusade to teach and translate Hebrew raises a question. What good is it in a violent conflict that's been going on for decades to speak your enemy's language? What can it change? Nasser reads and enjoys Israeli novels. He listens to Israeli pop, has Israeli friends, mostly journalists. He's an idealist. 
He believes that learning the language of the other side can be the first step toward understanding them, toward peace. A 28-year-old named Muhammad with a big sad face, a guy Nasser taught Hebrew to, tells me this story about being in an Israeli hospital in a room full of Israeli kids when he was 16. Muhammad asked the kid in the bed next to him, in Hebrew, So what are you in for? Car accident, the kid said. And you? Muhammad said, I was shot in the leg by an Israeli soldier. And they asked me why they shot you. Are you one of the terrorists? Are you Hamas? Are you Jihad? Are you? And I said, no, I'm not Hamas. I'm not Jihad. I'm student. I was student. I go to my school. It was no war. It was nothing. Yani, six in the morning, uh, there was no clashes, no throwing stone, nothing, nothing. Yani, uh, he was, oh, yeah, I feel like sorry. We are sorry. I'm sorry. They said, I told him that you don't have to say sorry because you are not the one who shot me. And he was just yani, surprised. And they said, yani, his mother, because she can every day to come to the hospital. My mother, she can't because there's a checkpoint. But his mother, she can come every day. And she was bringing food to me also. Chocolate, uh, food, uh, um, uh, shaving machine. She brought you a razor? Yeah, yeah. She gave me her phone number. If you need anything, just call. We are uh, here. They asked me a lot of time to come to visit. And uh, I hope when I can. Not everyone Nasser taught Hebrew to is so hopeful about it. Nasser taught this guy in prison. He says speaking Hebrew helps if you want to have a personal conversation with an Israeli, get to know their life. But when it comes to politics, knowing the language doesn't make any difference at all. The same walls are there, just more clearly. Still, if your only two choices are violence or talking, Nasser chooses talking. He and Muhammad are part of a group of people who do training for community leaders in nonviolence and what they call compassionate listening, how to listen to someone you really, really disagree with. Nasser is against suicide bombings, feels that the Palestinian people have a right to resist, but that the armed resistance is not working at all. Given all this, given his politics, I was surprised by some of the things I saw on Bethlehem TV. One day there were hours of songs celebrating martyrs to the Palestinian cause, including suicide bombers. Another time I saw an unforgettably Baroque video celebrating Saddam Hussein. Picture a plump man in a long blue tunic, smiling, singing, and pumping a machine gun up and down in time to the music. Behind him, a crowd of men in uniform is moving their guns and dancing in time also. They're holding a large picture of Saddam Hussein in front of them. Then Saddam himself appears on screen, in a fedora, firing a pistol in the air and smiling. Then the Iraqi army is jogging, followed by anti-aircraft guns shooting, and soldiers marching, and tanks moving against the sunset, and mosques, and more of Saddam in the fedora. This was April. The war in Iraq was long over. When I ask Nasser about it, he tells me not everything on the program reflects his own political views. People call and request these videos all the time, so he plays them. But then he also broadcasts stuff they don't request. Look, Nancy, yesterday I translated all the speech about uh, the Holocaust. And the people asking me, why? They are our enemy. 
I said, we have to know also they are suffering. We have to know a lot about the Holocaust. They surprised, but I know that they trust me because I was in the Israeli prison six years, because I am living in the Haitian camp, refugees camp, because I am Muslim, because I am poor, not rich. They trust me. They said, okay, if you say that, we will know a lot about the Holocaust. By the time he was done, Nasser translated several days of Israel's annual commemoration of the Holocaust. Rest assured, this doesn't happen on any other Arabic language station. I spent a day interviewing people around Bethlehem about what they think of the show. It's excellent. He's a good journalist. It's fantastic. It's excellent. It's very good. Because they give us the opinion of the people who are in Israel. Almost everyone I talk to watches the program and loves it. People say they do get information there that they can't get anywhere else. One man told me that when the second intifada started, the only way you could find out which Palestinians were wanted by the Israelis and why was by watching Nasser's translation of Israeli TV. Did you ever um, learn something new about Israelis that you never knew before? Yeah. Like what? There are some writers or uh, journalists that are on our side of the Palestinian problem against against their government. It's good to know that there are Israelis who are with us. I saw a very poor uh, Israeli family in the program of Nasser. You know, they are very bad economically, more than us. They have maybe bread to eat. This, is, was a, this was a new thing for us. Bethlehem, where the TV station is, is a dusty, broken-down, depressing place. Most businesses are dead or on the ropes. No parks, no pools. In the summer, people often have running water only once a week, or even every two weeks. Israeli army vehicles roll through practically every day, sometimes to demolish a house. And the neighbors pull chairs onto their roofs and sit watching the destruction, since most don't have jobs. There are 12 Israeli settlements within 10 miles of Bethlehem, and they're growing. Nasser told me that when he was at work one day, he looked up at the television and saw his own kids, his 11-year-old twins, on TV throwing stones at Israeli tanks and soldiers. He was alarmed. Kids have been shot and killed throwing stones. He talked to them about it that night. Why are you throwing stones, he said. Because they're the enemy, they told him. Who told you that, he asked. The kids at school, they said. I asked him if he told them to stop throwing stones, and he said, of course three, four, five times he told them. And then they started lying and saying they hadn't thrown stones when he knew they had. He doesn't know what to do. When he talks to friends, Israeli journalists, on the phone at home, his 11-year-old daughter, Beirut, says, I heard you talking Hebrew. Don't talk to those people. Nasser has been trying to teach his kids Hebrew, so I interviewed the four of them. None of the kids see learning Hebrew as a bridge to peace, the way their dad does. For them, it's way more utilitarian. It helps you talk to soldiers, they say. Maybe it can get you out of a bad situation. 
what words and, and phrases do you know in, in Hebrew? Khayal in Hebrew, which is in Arabic, Jundi, which is soldier. Kid is Walad, Yeled. Bokertov, good morning. Please, which is Bakasha. Beseder, okay. Bohena, come here. Metumtam, dumb. And the baby, tank. Why do they know the word for dumb? تسمع مثلا جنود بيحكوا للناس هاي الكلمة متمتام ولا من وين يعني انتوا سمعتوها؟ بيروت's twin brother Marcel, a tiny boy with a large retainer in his mouth, jumps in. The soldiers are saying this to the kids and the kids are saying this to the soldiers. When I talked to your, to your kids yesterday, they definitely said that the reason that they wanted to know Hebrew was to know the language of the enemy. To Does it worry you that your kids aren't getting to meet Israelis at all and, and, and that for them it, it is the language of the enemy? I'm very worried. I'm worried also because they are throwing stones against the Israeli tanks. I'm worried. I don't want them to do that. You can imagine, you are sitting uh, in your office writing and worry about them. What if soldiers shoot at them? What can I say? What can I do? How can I live? What can I say to the others if, some, if one of them has been killed? They know just the tanks, the soldiers who are shooting. Why, why they are not in the same schools? Why? Why they are not in the same pools to swim? My kids don't know the Israeli people. They don't know the kids in Israel. Someone to stop that. He takes a drag of his cigarette and smiles. Maybe you can. <laughs> Try. Nasser speaks Hebrew and he's teaching his kids, but actual Israelis are a world away, and he can't convince his own children, a genuine captive audience, not to hate them. Nancy Updike in Jerusalem. Coming up, start a show in a karaoke bar, end a show in a karaoke bar. No matter how little it has to do with the last story and the last act, can we do it? Dare we do it? Answers in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Lost in Translation. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show. Act 3, translating for the very, 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 very tall. Well, friends, we've heard about the struggles between Palestinians and Israelis, between Russians and Americans. In this act, we ask the age-old question, can there ever be peace between the tall and the short? Can people of different heights ever hope to get along? Jesse Hardman tackled the issue. My earliest memory of my cousin Colin is fighting with him over a Fernando Valenzuela baseball card. We were both seven years old, both way into sports and pretty competitive. Mainly we'd play basketball. If you ask me, I'm a little bit better than he is. Don't ask him. After graduating from college, Colin headed straight to Taiwan and stayed there for almost three years, just knocking around, trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. He took classes, worked a few jobs. He also played a lot of basketball with locals at nearby gyms. This left him with a very specialized but seemingly unmarketable vocabulary. Slam dunk. Cold on. Fall away jumper. Hoyang. Weak side defense. In Chinese, I just say the side without the ball. When I caught up with Colin two summers ago, he was working for the U.S. government in a dead-end job translating Chinese documents. He was determined to start being practical. The words law school forced their way out of his mouth. You could tell he was hitting the career default button. Then an old friend stepped in. And she had this piece of paper, you know, a job description. Uh, NBA player seeks a full-time interpreter... Looking for native English speaker, fluent in Mandarin Chinese, interest in basketball. So it was like, yeah, right. Two weeks later, my cousin had made the jump from owning baseball cards to working for one. Sort of. Now, Fox 26 Sports with Keith Gulkins. Hi again. Yao Ming in Houston for what, 24 hours or so? The hoopla includes plenty of wide eyes and lots of curiosity seekers, as if they've never seen a 7'6 Chinese millionaire before. It turns out that Colin's new job wasn't with some benchwarming experiment. Yao Ming is the starting center for the Houston Rockets. And if you haven't heard of him, congratulations. You officially know nothing about sports in America. He's the biggest story out of the NBA this year. The first foreigner ever to go number one in the NBA draft. His style of play is supposed to revolutionize the game the same way that Michael Jordan's did. Add to this, he has the hopes and dreams of a billion emerging NBA fans in Asia riding on his shoulders. And Colin met him for the first time, the same day the rest of America. You know, at the airport, at first there weren't that many people, and all of a sudden you get the, the whole lobby is just crowded, and the, the people are surrounding him. And, you know, I had to get up and translate right away. He had to give a few brief statements to the crowd, and, and we had never met. Speaking through interpreter Colin Pine, Ming says he's anxious to get on the court and work on his game with his new teammates. After waiting uh, such a long time, it's like opening a door and uh, having uh, a breath of fresh air. I think my heart was about to burst through my chest. I'm up there with the lights on me, next, you know, with Yao Ming sitting next to me, and then I'd, I've heard of instances of people who had to do translation in situations like that just choking, just not being able to say anything. I'm, lo- I'm floating above the ceiling looking, at myself, looking back at myself doing this, and just for me to get through that first time, I, I was pretty happy. Fans, it's time to stand up, make some noise. 
Early in the season, I catch up with Colin at a game in Minnesota. My first chance to see his new life from the inside. Yeah, you're right here. We stand in a nondescript concrete hallway near the visiting locker room. Players are walking by, ribbing Colin and smacking him on the ass. Superstars like Glenn Rice and Steve Francis. Colin's idol since college. Guys I'm used to seeing on TV. Mr. Glenn Rice. Colin disappears into the Rockets locker room. A few minutes later, he reappears with his new boss, Yao Ming. Yao's 7'5", Colin's my height, 5'9 in shoes. Yao slatches up against the locker room wall. Colin leans in next to him. A crush of TV cameras, microphones, and notepads descend on the pair. Lots of the reporters are from Asia. Hold up, wait, 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 excuse me. Hey, wait, 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 excuse me, let me translate, please, thank you. It's a month into the season, and media fascination with Yao's story is bigger than anyone imagined. Yao's the only player who reporters want to talk to before and after every game, regardless of how he plays. The questions tend to be the same in every city. Questions about adapting to the NBA and life in America. What do you do in your spare time? He sampled the local cuisine. And of course... Does he see himself as a role model to other uh, Asians in America? For the most part, Yao feeds them straight sports cliché. One day at a time, I'm still learning the game. But every once in a while, he'll give them an answer that leaves reporters scratching their heads. Like this question, where the reporter asks, what's it like to play against Minnesota star Kevin Garnett? Uh, he, he, he seems like a spider. He's a spider. Spider. He's uh, strong arms and strong legs. Spider. Yeah, like a spider. The bulk of Colin's translating work is just getting out through these daily press conferences. Yao speaks enough English to communicate with coaches and players during games and practices. But Colin sits with the team courtside, just in case. Sit right there, behind the bench in the red seats right there. They don't need me that much, though. So what do you do most of the game? Watch and cheer and try not to say too much. i got to be careful. I'm a very uh, enthusiastic fan. But I, I need to maintain a professional uh, demeanor, I suppose. Fast forward two hours, fourth quarter. Rockets down by six with a few minutes to go. Oh, come on! So much for professional demeanor. Oh, Collins up out of his seat, looking like he wants a piece of the ref. But if anything, this actually helps him fit in with the team. Here's backup center Calvin Cato and backup point guard Muchi Norris. He get mad when calls go bad like we do. He, he just, he a basketball player that can't play. He's sitting on the bench. <laughs> He's one of the boys. He's one of the guys now. Uh, you know, he works here. He's with us. He's part of the team now. So uh, uh, we love him to death. We, you know, I'm just happy he's here. And it's not just the players who glow about Colin. A Rockets executive tells me that most NBA translators are just linguists with no feeling for the game. That Colin's made it way easier for Yao. Even the press loves him. Sam Smith is a veteran basketball beat writer for the Chicago Sun-Times. I've been around a lot of uh, international events with the Olympics with translators, and he's been absolutely the best and most efficient and effective interpreter I've ever been around. You know, more than most guys in that situation, uh, you could tell Colin not only is close to Yao, uh, but they like each other. They're comfortable with each other and they trust each other, and that's a situation you never see. 
Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go to Burger King right now. But it, where's his dad? I don't know. Here, talk to talk to Yao Ming. I'm going. Yao Ming. Here's what most of my cousin's glamorous job looks like up close. Usually, he and Yao are nowhere near a basketball court. Usually, he's not even translating. Right here, Colin is trying to get Yao to the DMV so he can take his driver's test. It's part of Colin's job to be Yao's driving instructor. The problem today is a National Geographic film crew wants to tag along. Colin can't find Yao's dad, who's also taken the test, and Yao's hungry. Colin literally can't go 10 minutes without having his cell phone ring, and it's never for him. Yao's agents, people from the Rockets, from the press, from the companies Yao endorses, even Yao's parents, they all get to him through Colin. Hey, Angie, it's Colin. Sorry to um, I just wanted to find when is a good time, when am I going to be able to give you this stuff? After the game or like all the tea, the tea and I have my, something I need to give you and I think I have a check from Yao Ming or his mother. Here's something else. When, how do you Colin lives with Yao. In a huge house, in a gated community, in a Houston suburb, together with Yao's mother and father, who keep a tight leash on their 22-year-old son. Originally, Colin was supposed to have his own place, but the Yao's invited him into the house early in the season. He thought about it and decided it made sense, since he'd be spending almost every minute with Yao anyway. And I also felt like, you know, they were being very nice in, in offering, and I felt like it, I didn't want to offend them by... By turning that, and but I mean, but it made sense. It just made a lot of sense. And but I mean, I'm 29, and you know, I'm not accustomed to living with a family. Yeah, I sometimes I think you know they, that his mom looks at me as a little kid. But <laughs> I know she worries like if I don't eat enough, or you know, if she's and it's really sweet. It's nice, but it's happens, it's a little strange. It'd be strange to move back in with your own family at 29 let alone a Chinese family you just met, which doesn't speak English, and whose shortest member, Yao's mom, is a half foot taller than you. Colin doesn't like talking about his home life with the Yao's. That's private. So private that he never has anyone over to visit, friends or family. He can't even invite me in for a beer. No, 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 no. Okay, now, after this one. Two days after Yao passes his driving test, I tag along with him and Colin as they head home from practice. They sing along to the radio together, they finish each other's sentences, and tease each other in a mixture of English and Chinese. Uh, you know, uh, before I met, met him, uh, I think Colin is uh, maybe 40 years old people. Uh, but I, and I, when I saw him, I think, oh my God, it's a young boy, maybe younger than me. But I asked him, he said 28. I said, 28? It looks very young. <laughs> um, does Colin have any annoying traits? Does he not clean up his room or anything? <laughs> does he hog the Nintendo? I He can't beat me, so I'm the one who's always hugging it. <laughs> Their bond has been formed through an intense mutual experience. The world of the NBA is foreign to both of them. There were lots of times especially on the road you know we'd have dinner uh, in in the hotel room and and we'd you know we'd we'd, we'd talk and we'd we'd you know say i would get stressed out over a press conference or something and i'd tell him you know this is why i'm stressed and this is you know and he'd do his best to help me a after that and then he you know it was harder for me to help him because you know the pressure on him was so much greater i mean for instance uh 
the the second was it the second Laker game in L.A. Um, and we lost in overtime, and he fouled out, and he was really upset. And I did my I said you know if if you hadn't he had a great game though, and I said you know if you hadn't played the well, we, we probably wouldn't have gotten here, gone to overtime. Um, the only thing I could do was just you know be an ear, be somebody you know who said you know I understand and and then mean it because I, I got to see it firsthand. Three fourths of the way through the basketball season, I catch a Rockets game at Madison Square Garden in New York City. It's a packed house, despite the fact the New York team, the Knicks, suck. Almost a third of the crowd is Chinese, many of them attending their first NBA game. They're here because of Yao, who's now a full-fledged phenomenon. He's only been in the U.S. for four months, but he's already the new face of Apple Computer, Gatorade, and Visa. To the surprise of the normal Knicks crowd, Yao's army comes ready to scream, and many have made homemade signs proclaiming their love of Yao. What's your sign say here? Yao Ming, the next big thing. What's so exciting about him? Honestly, I feel very proud. I'm, I, I plan on opening a basketball camp in Pakistan in the future because of this, and I want to like open the doors for Pakistanis to get into the game of basketball. That's right, Pakistan. This is the power of Yao Ming. He's united the Asian mainland with the Indian subcontinent. Just to see how far his celebrity extends, I asked this 22-year-old fan about my cousin. Um, he's got a translator. What, what do you think of that job? Oh, I, have a, I actually have a sign for him right there. Uh, what does it say? Right here. Move over, Batman and Robin. We have some new heroes in town, Yao Ming and Colin Pine. Citizens of Houston, have no fear. Ming and Pine are here. I'm just a huge fan. I, I, Colin Pine, I mean, he's Yao's right-hand man right now. I mean, he's the one that's doing all the talking for Yao in English. Yeah. yeah, so Yao, we get Yao's word through him. Is he a celebrity? Oh, definitely. When you, Anyone around Yao is a celebrity, I'll tell you that much. I'm floored by this, and my question of the night becomes, who's Colin Pine? You guys know who Colin Pine is? The interpreter. Yao Ming's translator. We, we actually ran into Colin Pine in, in Chinatown in Houston at a, at a Chinese karaoke bar. And yeah, Colin Pine was singing perfect Mandarin. One woman knows so much about him that she could have written this story. He worked at the State Department and he applied online and didn't think he would get the job and was shocked when they called and basically he was told he had to be here like yesterday. And uh, he was excited because he was a huge Steve Francis fan. Before I think he was a translating documents for the U.S. government. He must be the luckiest man in the world right now. That guy's got the best job in the world. I'd like to have his job. <laughs> in my very informal survey, 50% of the crowd knows my cousin by name. One Chinese-American co-ed who carries a sign saying, I'm single and bilingual, hey Yao, you and me, let's mingle, tells me my cousin's hot. Colin's heard it before. I've had, I've had, I've had girls pass me cards. Not often. I'm not. It's not like the the players get it all the time. I'm sure, but consciously and subconsciously, there's part of me that is really wary of that whole part, the whole thing. Just you know, I want somebody to like me for, you know, for the witty, intelligent, charming person that I am. My friends are like, this job is so wasted on you. Now oh, it's me again. Oh, good.
朋友。On a warm spring night, Yao, Colin, and I are out at a Chinese karaoke bar. Yao just passed his driving exam, and he wants to celebrate. He never goes out. This is a really big deal. He's out of the house, and his parents aren't around. The club sits in a stucco Chinese mini mall in a cookie-cutter Houston suburb, between a nail salon and a takeout place called the Fancy Noodle. Everyone has a couple of beers, but this is definitely the G-rated version of an NBA night out. Colin loves karaoke. He sings a Chinese love ballad with an English chorus. I only want to be your friend. Yao, appropriately enough, responds with the Backstreet Boys hit "Larger Than Life." Yao later tells me this night was the most fun he's had in America. Five years from now, you're going to be a veteran in the league. You'll be superstar, and you'll speak English, and you won't need an interpreter. So, who who will Colin Pine be to you then in five years? Hi, Paul. Still friends. Still friends. Do you think you'll you'll hang out still? 还是可以出去玩吗？如果你不介意的话，不介意不介意我把女朋友把你的女朋友抢掉的话，抢掉。If you don't mind and you don't mind me stealing your girlfriend, then it's okay. Jesse Hartman, you know you can download audio of our program at audible.com/slash/thisamericanlife, where they have public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Nancy Updike's story was part of the Hearing Voices Project, which gets funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is online at hearingvoices.com. Support for this American life is provided by Volkswagen of America. On the road of life, there are passengers, and there are drivers, and there are smooth-voiced announcers. Somewhere, not here. Learn more about Volkswagen at vw.com. WBEZ management oversight for our show by Tori Malatia, who calls me up drunk at least once a week and says, "Hey, how about a little mail bashing?" I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. R I Public Radio International.